Well, good morning again. We're going to be looking at the topic of, well, if I get to work, uh, I think the battery's about out. But we're going to be looking at why the Church of Christ, you know, and in regards to of all the different, quote, churches in the world, why would one decide to be a part of a, a Church of Christ or the Church of Christ? And recognize as we go uh, throughout this lesson, it'll be more and more clear to you that we're not just going to be talking about, well, if this this group has a building and it has the right sign on the door, uh, that they are right. And what you'll find is there's a lot of places that have Church of Christ on the front door that really aren't uh, a Church of Christ. But recognize that 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 a descriptor of a church is important. doesn't mean everything, but it does mean something. And so at least uh, that descriptor tells something about uh, that congregation there, at least what they claim uh, to be. And this is just kind of what we're going to be looking at uh, throughout the lesson. We're going to be looking at the Church of Christ as built on a true foundation. We're going to be looking at how can we know that a church is a church of Christ. Then we're going to be looking at what about arguments or divisions within the church of Christ. And then finally, how do I become a part of the church of Christ? Now, going on, uh, going on to a first point, point of this idea that the church is built on a true foundation. And that true foundation is Christ. Uh, that that is uh, the only real foundation that they that the church can exist in first peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through 8 it says coming to him is to a living stone rejected indeed by men but chosen by god and, and precious you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ therefore it is also contained in the scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Notice uh, what Peter says here, that Christ is a living stone, that we are living stones as well. We're being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And then we see Jesus being described as this chief cornerstone. And if any of you built a house, you recognize there has to be something. There has to be, as, as here, you recognize building a temple or if you're building uh, you know, any type of stone structure, there has to be that cornerstone which everything else comes from. Everything else... Uh, it can't, you know, all the measure, measurements originate uh, from uh, that cornerstone. And so as Jesus here is being described as a chief cornerstone in which the builders has actually rejected. And so he's that cornerstone. We're being built up in the spiritual house. And so he, again, we can't have this spiritual house or be this holy priesthood without Christ and him being our chief cornerstone. 
Go on to Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. This is probably a passage you're, most of you are familiar with. Talking about Christ and his relationship to the church, he says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So, what is his relationship to the church? Well, first of all, he's before all things. So he's actually really the head of all things. In him all things consist. But more specifically in the context, he is the head of the church. It's also described as the body or the body of Christ. And so his relationship to that church, again, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So he is the authority over the church. There is no man-made authority. There is no pope or some leader uh, that dictates what the church ought to be doing. The final say-so or the final head or authority of that church rests uh, with Christ. Also, a similar statement made in Ephesians 5, verse 23 through 24. Talking about husbands and wives there, but he compares the husband and wife relationship to the relationship that the church has with Christ. It says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, that he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. So, Husband is the head of the wife. Well, what does it have to do with Christ and the church? Well, Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. Again, he and we see here that just as wives are subject to their husbands, the church is subject to Christ. So what does that mean? He is the savior of the body, but he also, uh, you know, he, he has built uh, this church and also that he, the church is subject to him. So those that believe him must follow, uh, those that are part of that church must follow uh, his will. And so a church is a church of Christ when the members believe and follow the uh, teachings of Christ. In Acts 2 and verse 47, now notice this is the individuals here. Okay, so the individuals, they're, they're listening to, to, to Peter's message, they're repenting, they're being baptized, and they're being added to the church here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. And so those would become part of a longer congregation, the church in Jerusalem, or if they left Jerusalem, they'd start a church somewhere else. But here we notice that from the very beginning, uh, these people are listening to those words from Peter, which is actually from Christ himself, they're being saved. They're becoming part of that kingdom there. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verses uh, 6 through 10, talking about the writing to the church in Thessalonica, and notice what Paul has to say. He says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord. Kind of similar to what we read uh, in, in 2 Corinthians today. The Corinthians become followers of the Lord. The church at Thessalonica, what? They become followers of the Lord. They have, having received the word in much affliction, uh, with joy of the Holy Spirit, uh, so that you become examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. 
Your faith toward God is gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they believe, they follow God, follow the Lord. They, they're receiving this word in much affliction as well. So they're being persecuted. Uh, there's, there's people that are out against them, against that word. But their faith has sounded forth. Uh, to Macedonia and Achaia and even to every place. Everybody knows of their faith. Every every Christian has heard of, of their faith. And it's gone out. Paul doesn't need to say anything. He doesn't need to, you know, he, he wouldn't need to go out and talk about how faithful the Thessalonican church is because they all know. They know of that example that is set forth. And, and notice at that very last passage, we see uh, what they did. They, 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 of course, they following the Lord, but he says that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So this was their former life, that they were idolaters, they were sinners. And then they turn, and of course, those around them could see that just dramatic change, that here you're serving these idols. Notice it's this plurality of idols here to only serving this one true God, and this complete change. The, of the life of those in that church. And so, again, going along with this context, we see that it's clear they're following God here. They're serving God. They're believing and following the teachings of Christ, just like all these other churches that we read about uh, in the Scriptures. In 1 Peter 1, verses 16 uh, through uh, chapter 2 through uh, to verse 3, it says, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, for what eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, at whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in dark place until the, dawn, until the day dawns and the morning star rising in your heart. So Peter here, he's saying that you take heed uh, that this we have this word. We have Jesus uh, came down. Uh, Peter was there when, when and heard uh, God say, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." He was eyewitnesses of this, of this, of this Majesty, uh, eyewitness of His Majesty, and so this word has been confirmed. Heed this word, and then he goes on and says, "No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for, for, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit." So these prophecies, these words coming from Peter, Paul, the other apostles, the prophets before, where are they coming from? They're coming from God himself. They're not coming from man. So these things, again, uh, you ought to heed uh, this word. But what about those that don't follow that or false prophets? He said, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness, 
covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So we see this contrast here. Following the word, following this prophetic word, following Christ versus following these false prophets. And we see uh, the legitimacy of, of this message, that this word brings uh, salvation, but these false prophets, they bring destruction. They bring condemnation. That they themselves are going to be destroyed. And then, as Peter puts it, they're exploiting other people with their deceptive words. So they're deceiving others, which they're going to be condemned because they believe these false things. And so uh, we see of the, the, you know, the utmost, uh, you know, the, the priority that we should uh, put on following a Christ's word and for the church uh, to follow the word of Christ. Now, we've gone all through that, and of course we're looking at Christ being the true foundation. A church is a church of Christ when they follow and believe the teachings of Christ. And somebody may say, well, there's a lot of churches that follow Christ. Well, do they? So, and, and the question would be then, if there are multiple, quote, churches, I'm using that term lightly, that distinguish and separate themselves from one another, that in, in and of it, ex, it, itself is an acknowledgement that some, one of those churches has departed from the truth. There cannot be more than one church uh, that follows the truth because they've separated. There's something different. There's some doctrine that's different about a church of Christ versus some other church. And so we're going to look at some things uh, in which we can know or characteristics of a church in which we can know by looking at them whether or not they're a church of Christ. And, of course, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm sure you all could uh, find some more examples. But in my opinion, the, the, the easiest way to know whether a church is a church of Christ is by the doctrine that it, te- that it teaches. And I was thinking about it uh, this week that I think this is the easiest way to figure out whether or not a church is a church of Christ according to our other examples that we'll see in a, in a, in a minute. But ironically, this is probably the one thing which people ignore the most. I mean, you think about the reasons as to why people will leave a church and, and a lot of times it is the things that they've they've taught. But if you run into somebody and say, well, I left this Baptist church, was it because of what they taught or is it because maybe probably, it seems like a lot of times it's something to do with personalities or they just did something that they didn't like, but there's no nothing scriptural there. But we see, and we've seen in the other slides before, of the necessity of following the Word, the teachings of Christ, therefore the doctrines of Christ. And so in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3, it says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And so, again, Paul is urging Timothy, tell these folks, that don't be teaching a plurality of doctrines. Only be teaching the doctrines in which we have, which we have given them, because that is the only doctrine that's going to save and we see in Galatians 1, in verse 8, of if another doctrine is being preached. What happens to somebody who preaches another gospel? That person is accursed. Even if an angel comes and preaches this other gospel, let him be accursed. 
And by implication, those that follow that doctrine, not, not only if they're just, uh, not just technically teaching that gospel, but holding to and believing that other gospel as, as well, uh, causes you to be accursed. So if one, if a church is not teaching a, the doctrine of Christ or teaching some other doctrine, they're not this true church. Uh, those people are going to be condemned uh, if they won't repent. Also, another example or characteristic in which we can know whether a church is a church of Christ is by their, by their zeal, by their fire, by their fervor of we are wanting to do the work of the Lord. We're wanting to spread the gospel. And in Revelation 2, verses 4 through 5, this is Church of Ephesus, and it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay, so they're doing a lot of good things, but they've, they've left their first love. And so the only thing that makes sense in my mind that what this first love is is this initial love and zeal and fervor they have for the Lord because they're doing all these great things. They're doing all these these works, but there's something missing. And I believe it's their zeal. And that they're just they they're just maybe just getting to the point of they're just kind of going through the motions. They may be, you know, for example, may go through a church and you might could just tell they're doing all the right things but they're just not they're just kind of almost seems like they're just about ready to all of them to fall asleep that there's just not that fire that 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 zeal uh, to do the right thing and he says that you're doing all these things but you've left your first love repent do the first works and what's going to happen if you don't do that well Christ is going to remove their lampstand. And I don't know what all that is, and we don't know when that happens. And that's the most concerning part. But he says there's going to eventually become a time in which their lampstand is removed. And, again, not really too sure, but I do know that that means that they are uh, condemned before God, that they, they have fallen. Uh, that they are, that they, you know, there's no longer, they're no, they, they don't have this standing before for God as this faithful church. And he says they're going to remove, uh, Christ is going to remove their lampstand. And it's all because of this, this lost, as, as, as John puts it, the, the first love, or as Christ puts it, this first love that they have uh, fallen from. Also, another characteristic is their love that they have for uh, one another, for those that are outside as well. And in John 13, verses 34 through 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So he's talking to his disciples here. But how are they going to know if his, if if they are his disciples? It's very clear that the love that they have for one another. And you think about the early Christians in the early part of Acts, what they were willing to do. Think about, and you think about the Jews in that area, they were willing to sell land to help people that they, that, 
they might have met before at some other time, but more than likely these are probably strangers that uh, have become Christians, and they're willing to, to, to sell off their land to provide for their needs. And again, you think about uh, these Jews that this land that they had could have been in their land, could have been in their family for generations and generations and generations. They were willing to give all that stuff up uh, to help those that were in need. And so people could clearly see that they were different. And I think this is, you know, the same principle uh, stands uh, today, that if you don't show love for one another, you know, what is the world going to think about you? What is the world going to think about Christ if his own followers uh, don't even love one another? In Ephesians 5 and verse 2, it says, And walk in love, as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And so, how are we to love? Well, as Christ has loved us. And how much was he willing to, or how much did he love us? Well, he was willing to give himself for us. And so, this is what we ought to be, or this is the love that we ought to extend towards one another. And you think about that, and think about, you know, is there something that uh, you would be willing to do for your family that you wouldn't be willing to do for your brethren in regards to helping them or, or showing love in some way? And if there's something that you would rather do for your family but would not do for your brethren, then I would dare say that you're, you're not following these passages, that your brethren are of the highest priority that you love them as Christ has loved you. In 1 John 2, and verses 10 through 11, it says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And we see these statements made several times in 1 John about the ways in which we can know that one is in the light or is following God. This is not an all-inclusive statement, but if one is loving the brother, loves his brother, he's abiding in the light. There's not, he's not, uh, he's not just some sinner that's, that's in darkness. But this person that hates his brother, notice he's in darkness and walks in darkness. So this person that claims to be a follower of Christ, but yet he hates his brother, well, he's not. He's in darkness. And it says the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so we see here the several few characteristics, the descriptions and necessities that the members of that church have to have in order to be a church of Christ or a true church of Christ. And if I'm walking into some church building and these members aren't doing this, well, something is off. I know that something is off. And there has to be repentance made somewhere. Uh, for them to be uh, made uh, whole again. But what about arguments or divisions? I, I like this because every time when somebody, when you, when you get to talking with somebody about the church, they're like, well, y'all are, or talking about how, you know, you know, y'all are doing stuff that's not true and that's not in the scriptures and, and we are. And the question comes up, well, y'all are, Y'all are divided over this, that, and the other. Y'all are arguing about this, that, or the other. And so y'all are no different from the Baptist church or the Methodist church or whatever it may be. Well, 
the, you know, my issue with that whole line of argument is that if I'm a member of a church and the church may have some tension between the members in the sense in which there there's some question and there's some maybe some arguments about that. There's maybe somebody's divided over that. You're really in good company there because we see evidence in the scriptures of which even the apostles themselves have a lot of arguments. They have there there's divisions in the church. And those that periodically argue about the truth are not automatically in the wrong. You think about Acts chapter 15, we're not going to read the whole chapter. But there was somebody wrong in that case, and there was arguments, and there was divisions over that. But we see what there was a resolution, uh, that they resolved their issues. They figured out what was wrong, and they came to an agreed-upon conclusion. We see in Galatians 2, and verses 11 through 13, and... You know, again, understand the context here, and that uh, just there's there was a lot of issues with Jews intermingling with Gentiles, and a lot of issues with what doctrines ought to be taught in regards to that, as we can see in Acts chapter 15. But there's the issue with Peter here. It says, "Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I would stood him to his face because he was to be blamed." For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away uh, with their hypocrisy. So there was a problem with Peter. And this is an apostle now. Y'all understand that, uh, that he was separating himself from the Gentiles at certain times. So what did Paul do? He withstood him to his face. And you can continue reading that chapter to see what he says to Peter. But it wasn't, a, it wasn't just some pleasant conversation. I, I mean, he, he, Paul, I mean, Paul got it done in that conversation there. He, he, he was straight to the point with what, what the issue was. And so these are two apostles that believe two different things or, or doing two different things. And we see that apparently uh, this issue was resolved. And so Peter here, he was, he, he was not following the truth, but Paul was. And we see again that they, there was a correction made, and Peter apparently had repented. And so my whole point being is just because there's some type of argument, we got people that are divided over some issue, does not mean that... that, that the church is wrong or the, the all the other members are wrong uh, because these things do uh, come about even in the first century and so whether there are disputes is not an indication that a church is not a church of Christ rather it is a good indication there are at least some in the congregation that are willing to fight for the truth now if, the, if both sides are fighting for what's not true, disregard this statement. But usually, there's probably going to be somebody there that the reason this came about is there was some truth, there was there was the truth, and there's somebody there that's fighting for it. And this is why uh, these arguments came about to begin with. In Revelation 3 and verse 4 through 5, the church of Sardis, there were people there that in the midst of that terrible situation... There were some there that were still, uh, they were going to be clothed in white. They have not defiled their garments, as, as Jesus says. 
He says, And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angel. So again, in the midst of all this situation, there were still a few there that were doing the right thing. They weren't (coughs) accepting those things. They weren't, I don't believe that this is just some, we're just going to tolerate these things. But they were still fighting for that truth, holding to that truth, uh, you know, in the midst of a you know, very corrupt church. And so, again, uh, just because there's some division does not mean that, there's, that, there's, that nobody there is fighting for truth because there's probably somebody that is. And, uh, you know, a question that I would have, thinking about this line of thought of, well, would, you know, well, y'all got problems, and so I'm not even going to fool with y'all. I'm just going to go back over here to the Baptist churches that... I know it's not teaching right, but, you know, y'all argue about something, and so I don't like y'all anymore, so I'm going to go over here, even though I know that they're teaching falsehood. And my question to them would be, you know, where would you rather be? In a church that never disagrees on anything, or a church that when an issue arises, it is made known and a resolution is actively sought. And so if you're a part of a church, and you're, that they never disagree on anything. There's some problem that comes up, we just sweep it on the rug. Let's stop talking about it. Let's just agree to disagree. That's a huge issue, and that's a much bigger issue uh, than when there is an, an issue that actually comes forth publicly. And, of course, that issue has to be held, uh, dealt with correctly. And we see that being worked out in the Scripture so that it is possible. A resolution is actually sought, and a, a resolution is made here. So which one would you rather be a part of? I would not want to be part of that church that never disagrees on anything or there's nobody that everybody just kind of goes on for a hundred years and never says a word about anything or never, never, you know, you know, never says, hey, this is a problem. Hey, we need to change this. This is not right. That's that's we don't need none of that because there's there's something going there's something else going on in that church. If that is uh, what's going on there. That's a big issue, just a go along, get along attitude. Second Corinthians chapter eight and verse twelve says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. I think y'all all recognize the context here. This is not talking about divided churches or arguments or whatever. He's talking about those that were willing to give to brethren that were in need. And what counted was not the actual amount that they gave, but it was that they sought to do the right thing. They had this willing mind. And even though they may not have just this whole lot to give, maybe this church over here gave a million dollars and these people were only able to give $500. Well, it's not that this, their $500 contribution does not mean that they're unfaithful or whatever. If they gave what they could give, but they did seek to do the right thing. So it was the fact that they were willing to do these things, that they sought to do the right thing. They had this willing mind. And so I say all this, and I think this, there's a principle here uh, that... When you think about the Church of Christ and other churches, what is the, the difference, and especially in regards to these arguments, is that the members of a Church of Christ actively seek and apply the truth, recognize that we're all grown. There's all different. There's all different levels of maturity. 
Some may just not know as much as the other. But when presented with the truth, what do they do? They apply. And they make a, you know, they make a, a complete 180-degree change if necessary. And so I think this is really this principle here that you know, if we have this willing mind, that you're willingly going to seek for that truth and apply it, then I think that's really what makes the, a church a church of Christ. And they're willing to do that regardless of the consequences. So finally, you know, how do I become a part of the Church of Christ? And we kind of we talk, talked about this at nine o'clock very briefly. But how do I become part of the Church of Christ? And I'm talking about the Universal Church of Christ. Well, first you have to become a Christian. You have to believe. You have to uh, confess Christ. As Romans ten and verse nine, Acts twenty six and verse twenty, we see Paul says that he demands those that become uh, that are or or thinking about becoming a Christian to repent and do works befitting repentance. So repentance is necessary. Then we also see in Mark 16 and 16 that one has to believe and be baptized in order to be saved. But uh, beyond that, one has to be obedient to Christ as well. We see in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 through 6 that one has to be obedient to him. One that does not obey him, one that does not follow uh, God's commandments, uh, does not abide in God. And we see in 1 Peter 1 and verses 13 through 16 the exhortation to be holy just as God is holy. And so this is how, uh, you know, we've become a part of this church, that, we, that we've become a Christian, we remain uh, faithful and obedient to Christ. And then how do I become a part of a church of Christ? It's talking about the local church of Christ. It's really the same. Uh, we don't really see anything different. That if somebody is a Christian, they're, they're, they're continue, continually faithful to Christ. I mean, that's the only prereqs that we see. Uh, we don't see anything else. And so, you know, if there's anyone here today that, want to be, that wants to become part of that church, we'd certainly extend that invitation. Uh, if there's one here that uh, maybe they're a Christian, but they're not being obedient to Christ, recognize that. Uh, that you have to repent, that you need to repent of those things. Return uh, back to God. And if you are in that situation, you need the prayers of the saints, you need to confess anything, we certainly offer this time of invitation now as we stand, as we sing.